0: It is a super awesome part of my old job is that we got that patent. So.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. I think it actually is. Um, not that you're in the SE track anymore, but for a principal SE, um, they like to have that. Yeah, they do. Sorry I think for-
0: it actually is intended to be an EMC-based patent or something that benefits the organization. Um, so uh, I don't think it's going to have anything, uh, although, you know, whatever. It doesn't hurt to So it's yeah. it's really cool. What The best part was that they actually went out and had those um, plaques made yeah. which which now is something more for uh somebody that dust <laughs> aka you yeah not me but yeah <clears throat> so awesome all right you are you good to go I'm good to go man we have internet let's do this thing
1: let's kick it off all right three two one welcome welcome everybody to the hot aisle my name is Brent Piatti and with me as always I've got uh who are you over there buddy <laughs> By now you should know this, Brian Carpenter. That's right. You know, I forget every week, but every time we come back, you, you remind me, so I appreciate that. But this is episode 19, and today the goal of the show is to educate you on big data. And I know that's a nebulous, nebulous term, but what we want to do is really boil that down in, into something that's a bit more consumable. Uh, also, we want to look at how analytics, Hadoop, and this concept of you know the data lake and then also organizational culture enables a business to gain value and insights from its own data and various data sources. So today we have a guest that uh, many of you will know, uh, but in case you don't, uh, he goes by the moniker, the Big Dean of Data. Oh, I'm sorry. Jeez, I was way off. It was the easy Dean, for you to say. Yeah, the <laughs> Dean of Big Data, Mr. Bill Schmarzo. So Bill. Thank you very much for joining us today. How are you doing?
2: Great. Thanks for having me on board. I hope I can live up to all the expectations of being the big dean of of big data. Huh? <laughs> the, the biggest dean is
0: that is that biggest. like a moniker that like um, resonates in your household? Is like your does your significant other call you the uh, the big dean or anything?
2: Well, my daughter for Christmas actually got me a license plate for my car that goes Dean OBD Dean of Big Data. That right. is so awesome. She, she thought it was pretty cool. So. Uh, yeah, it is kind of neat.
0: I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, customized license plates, so uh, much respect for yours. And your daughter did a great job. I hope she got you like the, the 10-year subscription because it gets it a little <laughs> cheaper. That's what I had to do.
1: Very cool. So, so Bill, uh, tell us what you do, uh, why you do it, and uh, you know, really why people should care.
2: So I'm, um, I'm the CTO within EMC Global Services and, and within our big data practice, which means I'm not a product guy. And um, I'm, I'm on the business side or the consulting side of the business. And um, what, what I do is I, I really do two things, is I help our customers figure out where and how to start their big data journeys. And then I, me and my team, we help them along that path. And what we've done is we've got a process, a methodology that is very much aligned along the lines of business transformation. And really how we help organizations, you know, make more money. In fact, we, we jokingly say that organizations aren't really interested in the three V's of big data. They're not interested in really volume, velocity, and variety. They're interested in the four M's of big data. Make me more money, <laughs> right? And so um, that's kind of the focus. And um, and I've, I've, I've been in this data industry for a, a damn long time, Um uh, I started doing this back in the 1980s in the data warehouse space. In fact, I had a one of those Forrest Gump moments, right place, right time, when I was at Procter and Gamble in '87 and '88, doing work with Walmart, and with the sort of was the actual birth of the data warehouse and BI marketplace. So, got a long history in the BI data warehouse space, and then was um, hired about 10, 12 years ago by Yahoo to um, to address a problem they had with business, which was around advertisers spending money. And helping them to optimize that spend. So um a lot of that, that too was a Forrest gump moment because the analytics that my team were were trying to build, we were building on top of this technology that Yahoo was developing called Hadoop. Mm. So uh, like I said, force gump moments. Not because I'm smart or good looking or from Iowa. I just happen to be the right place at the right time. Sometimes you'd rather be lucky than good.
1: So you got a lot of experience, uh, you know, coming up through the ranks. Again, Yahoo came from business objects. Um if you're also teaching, you're a professor, right? Is that, does that still hold true?
2: Very true. In fact, I just got a letter yesterday that officially announced that I am the University of San Francisco School of Management's very first fellow. Wow, so congratulations, I, congrats. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of cool actually because I, I so I teach a class called the um, Big Data MBA, and the underlying premise behind this this class is that the days where business leaders can turn over analytics to IT are over. That the business leaders of tomorrow are going to need to embrace analytics as a business discipline in the same way that they embrace accounting and finance and management sciences and operations research as business discipline. And so my entire class is really built around the idea of how do I get the business people to think like a data scientist? How do I get them to embrace data science as a not only to help identify those variables that might be better predictors of, of performance but culturally how do I help organizations to unleash the creative thinking the creative juices that are sort of buried inside the organization so it's a fun class they're a bunch of guinea pigs um, second year I ran it the the dean of the school actually had a meeting with me and she said we've never had a class that's we never had a class that sold out in 24 hours and you're sold out in two so um she was very excited about the class. It was oversold or oversubscribed, but the students were wonderful. Um, I, we actually gave them assignments, real-world assignments from real-world clients they had to do projects on. They had to apply the technique of thinking like a data scientist. And in reality, I probably learned more about where the process works and how to make it better than, than they did.
0: That's very fantastic. Cool. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't actually have uh, big data when I was in business school because Statistics would have killed me. That's exactly why. That's exactly why I got out of engineering was because math was crushing me, and I went to something like business where I could use it and uh, not have to do any math. And here you are ruining business degrees for everybody who can't do math. Sorry, yeah. well,
2: um, I'm not. Ma- I'm not turning the business people into data scientists. That's probably the, the key point here. Is that you know there's this there's this fascination with we need to turn people into data scientists, and and kind of what motivated my second book was that I was getting all these free books because I wrote the first book, right? So all of a sudden you start getting all these free books about data science and all these data science books were, were focused on how do I create more data scientists? And I remember thinking, they're missing the point. I mean, yeah, you need to have data scientists, but there's this there's this, this misguided belief that, that I can hire data scientists like these unicorns who both know data science and know my business. And Well, there's only five of those people in the whole world, and they all work at Google. So I need to be able to find, you know, I need to let data scientists do data scientist stuff, but how do I couple them with the business to get the best of both worlds? And so the, my, my second book is really targeted towards really unleashing that creative thinking on the business side so that when you create that collaboration between the business and the data science, you end up, you end up with all kinds of incredible and valuable insights. And, and you end up in places where truly the one plus one equals three hits.
0: So the, you're using, you've got your first book, which, um, I think both Brent and I've read. And I think it's not only a textbook at the, uh, university of San Francisco, but I think it's also a textbook inside of uh, a lot of our worlds. Um, I understand. Are you using that as the official courseware for your class?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, the, we. my first book is, is being used by a number. I found out a number of MBA programs across the U.S. I get messages from Santa Clara and Seton Hall. I got a message from a university in Iran who's using my book. I'm That's like, awesome. Ran? Yeah, so, um, and, and, we, and we used the book. We used the book in the class. But that but that book was really targeted towards IT. There's a lot of IT-isms in it. And I needed a book that was really geared towards the business people, people who didn't really care about the technology. They needed to know what technology could do, but they didn't need to get you know, all wound up around the feeds and the speeds, right? And so the, the, the second book is really designed much more for an MBA and a business person who, who's more interested in the analytic outcomes and how I take action on it and less concerned about the technology that delivers that to me.
0: And I understand that second book is pretty much almost done. Is that correct?
2: Well, in fact, when I get done here, I go over to my Starbucks and I finish the final review on the final chapter. So That's chapter, awesome. Chapter 15 is waiting patiently for me to go at it. And so my part of the book will literally be done by the end of today.
0: And so uh, when should we expect that on uh, shelves? Is that a Christmas gift? or It'll
2: be a Christmas gift. Yeah, Santa will be bringing them and, and dropping them down chimneys. and. And if you're really nice, maybe Rudolph will bring an extra one for you.
0: We'll trade you an, in in the DC or I'm sorry, the hot aisle. I've got into DC stickers too. I'm rude. <laughs> I'm very selfish there. Uh, we'll trade you some hot aisle stickers for a, a book or so. How does that sound? A I mean, it's a fair trade there. It's even swap. Um, <laughs> and, and so I I did talk to somebody who may or may not have written a forward uh, or a, in your book there. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading it. And you know, one of the key, you know, as we move on here, what what I'm interested in understanding is: Do you feel like so? You've got obviously got courseware for students. Do you feel like your books can also be used as courseware for existing business people in offices everywhere for them to be able to read it and really pick up these concepts and then deliver them inside of their offices?
2: Oh no! In fact, the the first book has done that. I, I got to tell you a story. So I <clears throat> I'm walking to a meeting, and it's with a client. And we're ready to have this meeting. And the CIO walks in the room and says, he's got his book in it. This book in his hand. He goes, "This is a must-read book for everybody in our organization who wants to get value out of big data." And I go, "Oh wow, what book is that?" He goes, "It's yours, you big knucklehead." <laughs> and so our, our clients are, are many of our clients um, at EMC are are using this book. I've even got letters from um, other companies who, in some cases, are you know competitors in some space who have mandated my book to be used across their organization. So the first book got a lot of adoption on the on the IT and the technology side because I think it provided a roadmap for the IT industry to have a discussion with the business people. So And I expect my second book will be much more geared towards the other side, the business people who need to have a conversation with the IT people. So the two books together should really be, you know, good bookends for trying to drive the collaboration between the business people and the IT organization.
1: Cool. So your first book, which is out, um, Big Data, Understanding How Data Powers Big Business. Very good. And uh, what's, the, what's the name of the second one, Bill?
2: So I have to actually look it up because I remember we fought about the name. So the only part of the name that I know for certain is the Big Data NBA. And so it's actually the Big Data NBA, Driving Business Strategies with Data Science. So the idea is it's got a lot of, uh, of, of data science in it, but not like the data science where you're going to have to write code. It's got uh, one of the sections, my favorite chapter is chapter six, which really t- goes through and reviews about 14 different analytic techniques that we typically use within our projects. And I explained uh, from a business perspective when and how to use each of these different analytic techniques and even have created a fictitious company called Fairytale Land Theme Parks and shown how Fairytale Land Theme Parks could use each of these different kinds of analytics to drive their improve guest experience initiative.
1: Oh, very cool. We've, uh, <laughs> we've actually got a customer who is in the, uh, well, they make malls, and they just hired a guy over from Disney. And so we're very excited. Um, you've actually been a part of those discussions uh, to, to get him on board with, uh, you know, utilizing analytics in the mall space that he learned from Disneyland. Yep. So should be cool.
2: You know, so you um, raise, I, I'm going to butt in on you here and really, because you, you yeah. raise a really interesting point is that we're finding that the best use cases for most organizations come from companies not in their industry. And it isn't that other industries are better, it's just because they're different. Mm-hmm. and the, And organizations need that sort of creative whack. So, you know, uh, a mall looking at what Disney's doing. We're having discussions with the city of Detroit um, and trying to help them understand how they could leverage analytics like a Disney would use, for example, and trying to drive, you know, uh, an improved citizen experience. And you see these opportunities across all these industries to cross-pollinate these ideas, again, not because necessarily they're better, but they provide that different perspective that helps people to sort of go, oh, God, yeah, I see how that could help me. So it's yeah. it's really fun when you see those kind of cross pollination situations occur.
1: Yeah, I certainly agree with you. So let's go let's go you know real quick into your education. So it looks like you've got uh, obviously you've got your MBA uh, focusing on management systems, but your undergrad was in math and computer science. So um, how much of that kind of prompted you to delve into the world that you're in today, or was it just like, hey, I'm going to school, so I'm gonna I got to pick something.
2: No. So I, when I went to undergrad, I, I wanted to be a math teacher. And I went to a small school in Iowa called Coe College in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And um, I was going through my math stuff, right? And, and they just started, just started a computer science degree. And they had an old IBM 1130. And I'm talking about the kind where you have to pull the disk drives out. And when you write Code you had to specify where you start and where you stopped on the blocks. You had to do all all the calculations, and I fell in love with the idea of that you could use something like a computer to do stuff. In fact, I, I wrote a rocket simulation game. I stole, I borrowed the the all the all the math out of a Scientific American magazine, and um, they had he had these sixteen toggle switches on the front of the computer, which is how you interacted with it. And of course, you fed it with Hollerith cards and such. But the program ate up all the cycles. And so the only time I could ever run my program was from two to four o'clock in the morning. So I'd go in there every two to four o'clock and I would write and practice and, and play this rocket simulation game. So, and trying to land it on the moon and land it on Cider and land it on different, different planets with different sort of gravity and such. So I really fell in love with the idea of this computer and became Co College's only second the second uh, computer science graduate they had there uh you know sort of you know the program was brand new so again Forrest Gump better to be first sometimes right and so um or at least early so from that I just fell in love with data and throughout all my life and and you know maybe it goes back to the days when I was a young kid you ever remember the game you guys are so young you probably don't remember this game But there's a game called stratomatic baseball
0: you ever miss <laughs> no met- no. God, you guys
2: are too young. So Stratigmatic Baseball was like the like a like the baseball stats junkie game. You you had all these cards on every player and it had all their stats and you would roll the dice and you would and based on the dice it would tell you what they did vis-a-vis who was pitching to you and what situation was. It was a total nerd kind of game. But I was totally into the Stratomatic game because it allowed you to to apply statistics to situations and it was and so I sort of got into this this whole love of, wow, I can, if I know the data better than my competition, I can beat them, which is what Stratomatic was all about. If I knew more about what my players were, what they could do, I could put myself in better situations and win these games, right? And so um, maybe my, my love of, of data and stats kind of started back in those geeky days when I was just a little kid playing, you know, nerdy sports games, but... Um, throughout my entire life, I've always been around data. And so, you know, I'm I'm a 30-year overnight success in big data because I've been in it for so damn long, right? That, you know, the only reason why I know so much is because I've been around since it all started, right? So it's just a matter of, you know, sometimes you just round long enough you get the chance to see it all.
1: Sure. So I think, uh, you know, that, that kind of segues into a segment we do called This Week in Tech History, which I think you'll actually like. Uh, so this week in October of 1959... Control Data Corporation, otherwise known as CDC, released their CDC 1604 computer, and this was the world's fastest computer at that time. Um, so it was, um, what was it, 48-bit computer? It was the first computer that was primarily engineered by the guy Seymour Cray, mm. right, who was yep. Yep, famous. Uh, he he got a moniker similar to yours, but uh, he was the father of the supercomputer. So interestingly enough, uh, this one was the first ever was delivered to the U.S. Navy uh, and that supported their major fleet operation control centers uh, around the globe. So did you ever uh, mess with uh, a Cray supercomputer? Have Have you in all of your time?
2: Well, I was three years old when I helped him do that project, so it was. Uh, <laughs> we were
1: going to ask you just how uh, how crazy Seymour Curry
0: was in college. Yeah, he was he was insane. With, he yeah. he
2: he wouldn't give him my cereal in the morning. I was really pissed at him. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I um I've I've never had a chance to um to work on a well no I never have worked on a supercomputer. I've worked a lot of a lot of technology companies. And, it, it, you know, what's interesting about the age of the supercomputer is that, you know, th- we went through, we're, we've gone through a major transition, this is about as technical as I can ever get, where, you know, scale up was soon replaced by scale out, right? And, uh, and, and I love the analogy when the folks at Yahoo explained to me why the scale out was so much superior. And they used to say, well, imagine you're going across the country pulling a wagon train and you want to go, you know, you want to be more reliable, get there faster. Well, you can only grow oxen so big, At some point in time, it's probably better to have eight oxen than one, you know, large oxen. And um, I was like, yeah, duh. And so, um, yeah, I I, I haven't never been in a supercomputer space, but in the future, I guess, fewer and fewer people are going to need to be.
0: And that's, uh, so he also, there's an interesting part about that. He was called the, you know, Brent mentioned He was called the father of the supercomputer. um, And you're now the, uh, well, we're just going to go ahead and say it. You're the fellow of big data right? It can't be the dean anymore. Um, so you're the dean and fellow of Big Data. Where'd you get the name?
2: So um, at one of the very first stratas um, that was conduct- that was held about four or five years ago in Santa Clara, um, the two guys that, that ran that, um, Ed Dunhill and I can't think of the other guy's name, um, they had got the, the thing all set up and they were like, this is all full of nerdy stuff. We need something that at least talks about the business. And so they sent me a note saying, "Hey, can you can you do something on the business side? Can you can you make it not just all about technology and, and engineers can you can you do something on the business side so I, I created a class called a, a session in one hour session called the big data NBA and I went through and showed I, I even went back old school I went back to the 1980s and pulled lots of Michael Porter stuff from value chain analysis and five forest analysis and I showed how you could use those analysis to help you identify where and how big data could help drive business value so I did the class and then I was being interviewed right after the class by the by the cube Q- folks john furrier and david volante and uh, they're interviewing me and They said so what did you do, what did you do what did you talk? what was your session about and i explained it was kind of about the big data nba trying to help them understand how you know you could use big data to to rewire an organization's value chain and 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 furrier looks at me and goes you're like the dean of big data and it stuck so it's, it's furrier it's, uh, it's furrier's fault yes
0: love that guy um, <laughs> so he's he's fantastic uh, and so that'll lead me to the other part of this. Um, you know, we, we had, we had kind of discussed what you, where you work inside of EMC, right? It's uh you're the CTO of uh, global services and stuff like that. That's great. Um, that sounds like my title. I've got a global name in my title too. What, just tell me what it means. What are you, like, what drives your team? What are you driving towards? What are you doing? There's something that, you know, fires you up about going to work because you clearly have a lot of passion about it. So you know, make it a bit more common.
2: Okay. So here's, here's what my, my job is. I spend to the, much to the delight of airlines and much to the dismay of my family, I spend most of my time on the road talking to customers, working with customers. And the, 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 my job is really to, in many cases, to help them make the, the transition, both the mental and the cultural transition that big data, while it's, Interesting from a technology perspective, it's game-changing from a business model perspective. And so my job is to work with customers, get involved early, try to help them understand where and how they should start their big data journeys. Uh, let me give you some examples. We're doing a project for a hospital in Denver. Their key business initiative, and you're going to hear this term time and time again again from me, which is key Business initiative. So their key business initiative is to reduce staff infections, right? We're working with a hosp uh, with a school system down in southern Texas. Their key business initiative is how do I improve student performance while reducing teacher re- uh, attrition, right? Uh, we're doing a, a casino in southern California. They're trying to figure out how do they optimize how they comp hotel rooms. How do I calculate a better, more effective customer of lifetime value calculation so I can so I can make better decisions about who gets hotel rooms customer after customer I talk to, we get into discussion and says, okay, the technology is interesting, but let's figure out really on the business side, how we're going to leverage all this data and analytics to really power the business. And so the first thing I get involved with is helping them to pick out where and how to start. And then my team gets involved and walks them through a process of not only of putting in place that solution, building that solution out and kind of a very, very well, you know, step process, but also help them to think through the cultural changes. How do I embrace this ability that, that, that frees up the, the creative thinking in the organization? So many organizations are stymied by what we call the HIPPO, the highest paid person's opinion. And so marketing campaigns have always been run this way because this person says it. We've always done product management this way because this person says it. We've always done logistics this way because this person says it. And what we're trying to help these organizations to do is to say that, you know, creative ideas aren't the, 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 just a the domain of the senior executives. That sometimes people in the lower parts of the organization. In fact, more times the people who are actually doing the jobs on a day-to-day basis have better ideas of what can be done than the people who are sitting in the ivory towers. And so we get involved in that cultural change, though it's really, it's not an EMC typical kind of thing to see, but by the very nature of what we're doing as far as helping drive business transformation, to make it work, we are helping organizations change the way they view and integrate data into their day-to-day business operations.
0: And so I, I want to hit on it really fast just because it's interesting. You talked about the, this is the way we've always done it. Um, I, a really good friend of mine, former guest on here, Tyler Britton, showed me a video one time during a presentation where uh, trying to break glass around, um, you know, silos, and you know, we'll get into culture in a little bit, but just kind of breaking glass. And he showed me a video from The Contender about Five Wet Monkeys. Do you just bring that movie around and show it to every I assume you 're laughing, so I assume you 've already seen it
2: no i haven 't five
0: uh, wet monkeys five wet monkeys and i I'm, i 'm going to go as fast as possible with this because it 's literally like a, a like a three minute clip essentially uh, they go in and you know they hose they put a banana out or whatever, and they generally hose down all the monkeys when they try to reach for the banana, okay they pull one of the monkeys out and they put a brand new one in that 's never been hosed down. And the monkey looks at the banana, and he starts to go over there, and they hose everybody down again, okay? And so now they pull another monkey out, put another one in, this one's dry, and he goes to get a banana, and rather than hosing him down, all the other monkeys beat the crud out of that monkey for going for the banana, because... They know what's going to happen if you go get the banana. So then it keeps going and going. And eventually they've replaced all the monkeys. And no monkey there has ever been hosed down. But if anybody reaches for the banana, they all get beat up. And when it, <laughs> one of the monkeys, the new monkeys, comes in and he says, why are we looking for this? Why do we keep beating each other up because of this banana? And they just go, because we've always done it this way. So yes. that, that cultural legacy and that intrinsic value that continues to carry through uh, is, is stopping people from doing things that are completely common sense. Uh, because we've always done it that way. So anyways, it's from The Contender. It was Jeff Bridges, who's the greatest storyteller in the world from movie perspective. And I think everybody needs to go find it. The story is literally called like Five Wet, Wet Monkeys. It fits perfectly. So I'm shocked that you haven't ever seen it. Well, every, now,
2: every... I, now I'm going to use it as one of my favorite tools to help people think differently. Yeah,
0: it, you've just embedded in your presentations. It's literally like three <laughs> minutes. And I learned so much from when Tyler put that up there, that every time somebody talks about, because we've always done it that way, that's all I can ever think about. So anyways, I'm sorry to digress, but I think was, everybody... Hey, if just, I
2: can learn something, it makes it worthwhile. I mean, I, that's why I'm here. I'm not here just to talk. I'm here to learn.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm i not the guest, unfortunately. You are. So we are uh, we are going to get to culture and silos. Um, but, uh, you know, we did have a couple of questions just around uh, big data in general. So go ahead, Brent.
1: Yeah, so, okay, we've been using the term big data, and it's not new, but it's certainly a buzzword. Uh, and And I think when people hear... Big data. They they immediately think gobs and gobs and petabytes and terabytes of data, but that's that's not always the case. So so Bill, I'd love to hear your definition of you know quote unquote big data.
2: So um, I hate the term big data. <laughs> awesome because Perfect. it's um, it's it's not about the size for one thing. And, in, and the real value of the discussion has nothing to do with data. Um, it has to do with outcomes. So there's, we have this, this, this maturity model we developed called the Big Data Business Model Maturity Index. Right, let me say that again. The Big Data Business Model Maturity Index. And it measures how effective an organization is at leveraging data and analytics to power their business models. This I have given this presentation and I I typically it's almost like a TED talk. I draw it on a whiteboard and I walk through the steps and I have had several meetings, several two hour meetings where I never got off that chart. I never got off that whiteboard because what it's about is how effective is your organization at leveraging data and analytics to power the business. So when I think of the term big data, when I start talking about when somebody says, what is big data? I I I go old school. And to me, what I see in many cases is that big data manifests itself in two ways. Either I improve my decisions or I find new monetization opportunities out of the insights I have about my customers, my products, my operations. And so um, I think the data science conversation is much more interesting than the big data conversation because data science is about finding and quantifying insights in the data that I'm ultimately going to take action on. And at the end of the day, the only reason why I capture all this stinking data, I mean, no one in their right mind wants to build a data warehouse or data lake. It's a lot of work. No one loves it at the end of the day for you. You're not going getting any extra popsicles for it. So you, what, what you got, the reason why you go through that pain, because ultimately you want to make better decisions. And so I, I tell people, I said, it's like back to the future. I'm like back in my DeLorean here, because back when I got started in this space in the, in the, in the early 1980s, we didn't call it data warehouse. And just, we, we didn't call it BI. We call it decision support, and it's kind of what it's all about. How do I make better decisions? How, at that point of customer engagement, how do I know what that customer's mindset is, what they feel about my company, and what's the next best offer to give to them in order to help move them a certain
1: direction? It's as simple as that. So we kind of, you know, someone taglined it. uh, It's stuck, and it's here to stay, but I think your point is... Um, it's about business outcomes at the end of the Amen. day.
2: Yeah. I mean, why, why go through this process, right? If it's not about business outcomes, if it's not about, again, we, we jokingly say it's the four Ms of big data, make me more
1: money. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, okay, let's, let's, let's go into the actual quantity piece of this bill. So okay. what, what typical data sets are you working with again, with this quote unquote big data?
2: So, we, what we find is, so let, let, me, let me tell a story. Um, we all know the story of Moneyball, right? And Moneyball, the book Moneyball, not the movie. The movie is, you know, my wife saw the movie and thought Brad Pitt was, Brad Pitt was really cute. And I was like, oh, no. And I thought the purpose of the movie, Moneyballs is, is, about, is about data science. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, well, the lesson that you can take out of the book is that it very succinctly describes what data science is. Data science is about identifying variables and metrics that might be better predictors of performance, right? That's all it's about, right? On base percentage versus batting average, right? Things like, right. So, so the whole world has jumped on the, the money ball big part of all the data I can capture about at bats and ERA and slugging percentage and batting, you know, hitting in in, with runners in scoring position and, and whip and, and more and all these other kinds of crazy stats are out there in the real world. So, the A's, of course, perfected this, and they were masters of the universe for a while, and then everybody else, including the Cubs, sort of figured this thing out, right? And all of a sudden, the Boston Red Sox, who were on top of the world because they had embraced this model this past year, found themselves, you know, swimming around the toilet because everybody had copied. And then the Houston Astros come along, down in your neck in the woods, right? The, as some people would call them last year, the Houston Disastros, Um <laughs> And, and there's a lesson here. What, what, one of the challenges in everything we do in life isn't in the big data, the transactional data that tells us what's happening and we can use to predict what's going to happen. But it's in the small data, the small nuances about what goes on. So think about baseball. Think about trying to measure a pitcher's heart, right? What happens to a pitcher when they struggle, right? All pitchers struggle. What do they do the next inning? What happens? And yeah, you got some stats that showed you the bad inning and the inning after. But when he walks in the dugout, does he throw his glove down? Does he kick the water bottle? Or does he sit down and grab the notebook and start taking notes? Does he look over the video? Does he talk to the pitching coach? What goes on? How do you measure things like resilience and persistence? Well, that comes through, in the case of the Houston Astros, their coaches write down little notes about all their players, and not just in the majors, but throughout the entire minor league system to find those players who have heart, who have resilience, who can who can get beaten down, who can make a mistake on the field, can can feel the ball at third base and throw it into the stands, right? And then bounce back to the next play and make a phenomenal play. They, You don't necessarily, can find you can't find that easily inside all that detailed data, but the small data, small data takes you a lot. So what do we find? So we're trying to do like this... Um, how do we optimize student performance? Yeah, we got all their test results, we take all their online classes results, we have all that kind of stuff. But the notes that from the, the teacher-student conversations, the the um the, the teacher-parent conversations, the um PTA meetings and such, all the little notes that are taken along the, the interaction are invaluable and providing insights about what's really going on. So what we find in almost all of our engagements is, yeah, we got all the big data, which helps sell a whole boatload of storage and life is good and everybody can dance around naked. But it's what's really impactful is all the little tiny bits of information that come out. Let me give you a a really cool example. So we're, we're at this casino. We're trying to calculate lifetime value. Of a customer, right? Because forty-eight point two percent of their customers who who sign up for a player's card only come once, and if we can drop that number to forty-six percent, it's worth forty million dollars a year. And so we're looking at all the people in the casino who interact with with the with the player, right? You got the pit boss, you got the floor manager, you got the ambassador, the hostess, the waitress, the bartender, the um, the valet. We're like, okay, well, let's talk to the valet. So we're talking to the valet, and the valet says, you know, so tell what, what about your job? What do you know about customers? She says, well, he says, I know when customers come in when they have a new car or not. I'm like, well, how do you know that? And he says, well, there's two ways to know it. First off, in California, all new cars right now start with a seven because they increment as time, right? Get new, so if I see somebody come in the car that's got a, high, a seven and a high alphabetic number, I know that's a new car. Or it might be somebody I know regularly who comes in regularly. And I said, okay, so when you see somebody in a new car, what do you do? And he says, well, I say, hey, new car, what's up? And then he says, I shut up. And I said, what do you learn? He says, well, sometimes they say, you know, my car came off lease or it just wore out. Oh, no, that's not very interesting. I said, yeah. And he says, well, sometimes they say, hey, my youngest child just went to college and I'm an empty nester. K-k-k-ching! Or I just retired. K-k-k-ching! Right, more time, more money. Or the one I love is they just got divorced more time less money right so what's interesting is this this valet we now have them capture that note we have them capture the name of the player the player card number date time his name and then a little tidbit and mail it into the data lake dump it in a data lake and our data science team is constructing a day in in a day in the life of that person where we're capturing information like that and by the way guess what knowing somebody has retired right dramatically impacts the value to the organization who know that who knows that the lowly valet the guy or gal making minimum wage who sits outside no one thinks squat about but has an incredibly valuable insight and how valuable that player might all of a sudden be to the casino the little data the little data is very actionable
0: (laughs) so treat your valet good is what you're saying
2: amen lots of big tips (coughs) but stop talking to (laughs) him
0: You're uh, you're giving away your hand at the second you walk in the door. So it's yeah. not, it doesn't matter what kind of sunglasses you're wearing at the table because you screwed up the second you got out of your car.
2: Well, maybe though. Maybe all of a sudden when they're looking at comping hotel rooms, they, you know, and comping some meals, you know, all of a sudden you're more important.
0: Yeah, my Camry just came off lease, so now I'm going to get a new hotel room this weekend. So that's <laughs> awesome. I'm going to miss the Camberghini. So um, let's go. Let's go back to this culture thing. And again, you know, culture. Uh, you, know, you can see where just something as simple as treating the valets right and the organization is is going to change for that, but when we're talking about actually getting insights and how to get insights um, I assume that all big data and all analytics is just all driven out i t right that's like i t makes the prom project and they look for um, they're, they're they're there for decision support and they own all the data scientists and everything's driven by i t right
2: partially true but Partially not. So what we find is that most big data projects are still being driven by IT, in particular a CIO, because they own the data, right? They, they still own the data and the data is what's important. And in, in our successful engagements, we see the CIO who has uh, a friendly on the business side who they can collaborate with and bring into the process. Um, so we do see that the CIO is still the leader um, and probably rightfully so, because they're going to end up owning the data lake. They're going to end up owning all the all the technology and architecture. And the business people don't want to own that crap. That's, you know, who cares about that stuff? The Data scientists are different, though. And even EMC has, is learning this and is, and is sharing this, is that within EMC, you know, we've got probably, within our organization, we probably have 40 to 45 data scientists scattered throughout finance, marketing, sales, um, customer support, product development. We have all kinds of data scientists and they actually sit within the business unit. So while they may dot a line to a chief data officer or a chief analytics officer, they hard line into the business because you want the data scientist to work with the business people. When the business person has an idea, a hypothesis they want to test, the data scientist is there to work within the to state to test it out. So while the the, the IT organization still owns the data. They still own the infrastructure. The businesses are directing the data scientists. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that they own them because I think you still need to have, to me, the chief data officer, which, by the way, I prefer to call the chief data monetization officer, is is the person who has responsibility for the career of all those data scientists. The business people aren't going to care about, you know, letting them spend time and going to some university to learn some new techniques. So you still have to have a hard line, dotted line relationship. But the business directs what the data scientist does. The chief data monetization officer directs their career paths.
0: Do you still think that the, uh, the CIO is the, as you called it earlier, the hippo? Um, or do you think that's shifting?
2: No, the, the CIO has never been the hippo. And he, the, From a decision hip-
0: perspective on, on getting projects done and using analytics to make the company more money.
2: It's the CEOs can, can be a hippo, but where we see hippos are on the business side. The VPs of marketing, the VPs of sales, the VP of digital advertising, those kind of people are the ones who, you know, they've, they've been around for so long they're probably almost as old as me. And so they, they've learned things and they've always done things like this. And the, market and the, you know, the market's moved around them and they haven't caught on. So they're hanging on for their dear life, for the old things they've done in the past, in the past and they're the ones who are resisting change as the young bucks. And not really even young bucks. The people who are more open and creative are saying, wait, we should, we should do something different.
0: So, and, and when you said it in your most recent blog post here, um, you know, again, we research like crazy. Um, the, you said the two biggest killers of, of big data in an organization is culture and data silos. So Amen. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. So culture. So what we find time and time again on the culture side is that the best ideas come from freeing up the creative thinking of the business people. What I mean by that is that the 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 best ideas do not necessarily come from the senior people in the organization because in many cases they they're held they're they're holding on to old paradigms. But if you can unleash the creative juices of the organization, if you can get somebody in the organization who can suggest an idea, we call this, by the way, the power of might, M-I-G-H-T, right? The mighty might. This data source might be a better value. This, this, this metric might be a better predictor. This might be, right? And with data science, we want to embrace this concept of might because we want the business people to contemplate any and all ideas. We tell people that we do not filter ideas. The data scientists will tell us which ideas work and which ones don't. So the business team is all of a sudden freed up to imagine, to to envision different sort of data sources they could bring in, to envision other sorts of metrics they might want to use. The data science team will tell you whether that metric is useful or not. So the the, for the creativity, as I said in my blog, is a team sport. And when you get people in a room and you and you take away the hippos thinking and you, and you un, unshackle the business people, creativity is contagious. I mean, it's like the plague. And if one person has an idea, three people, five people tend to, and it just builds on each other. <clears throat> so that's the first issue is, is that creativity, right? Do you want, want me to go to the second one or want to talk yeah, about data you silos. Go. go, data silos? So I see time and time again in large organizations, data silos. <clears throat> now that is a artifact of a failed data warehouse strategy and when, and most organizations by the way have failed data warehouse strategies because it became so expensive to build that mega data warehouse in the sky And I had one executive who was vice president of a large bank told me that it cost him $125,000 per year per terabyte just to maintain the stinking data on Teradata he says, he says, don't even talk to me about a petabyte of data. He says, it's, it's debilitating. So what's organizations have had to do because the cost of a data warehouse is so expensive, we keep aggregated data, we keep 13 months of data. And in many cases, we end up building silos. So we get some kind of good response time, right? The data warehouse has caused this. And what's happened is it's become, it's become now a political issue. Marketing has their data warehouse. Finance has their data warehouse. Uh, logistics has their data warehouse, right? And as you get in the world of big data, there is no technology reason, there's no cost reason to have data silos. And so when I run into an organization today where they've got data silos with all this new technology out there, most cases it's a political issue that people aren't willing to share data. And it gets back to that hippo old way of thinking, right? Data is my, pow- my, 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 my base of power. I'm not going to share it with anybody. And they don't realize that in this new world, if I give that base power away to other people, I get more back in return. If I can integrate my sales data with my marketing data, with my customer service data, with my logistics data, my manufacturing data, I get a much richer view of my customers, my products, my operations, my employees, all these strategic nouns of my business. So... When the, we run into data silos, I know right away, more times not, it's a political issue, and they are going to struggle to get value out of big data because not only are they unwilling to share data, but they have the attitude and the mindset that they probably know all the, all the answers already, and I'm not going to listen to the people who are in the ranks of the organization.
1: So you brought up an interesting point, uh, talking about Just data one? warehouses. Just <laughs> 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 one? One that, that I definitely want to touch on. Um, so my my suspicion is you know George Radford from mm-hmm. uh, the CTO from Pivotal. Yep. So I've been I've been um on the receiving end uh with some customers and and he is just phenomenal, right? Yep. And his whole thing is he absolutely hates uh he hates data warehouses, he hates um um you know SQL and Oracle. He's basically like rows and columns. Great. How cool is that? So, you know does, does SQL and Oracle, in terms of a data warehouse, does it have a place anymore? Is or is it, a, is it a relic that can be replaced with something you know newer or different?
2: So let's let's double click on that point. So how why do people build data warehouses today? They build them to generate reports and dashboards, right? That monitor the business, that tell you what happened. You absolutely need to have those reports and dashboards. You have to know. How much product I sold last month, how many customers I had, how many employees I hired, right? All the information that talks about what happened is is coming out of the BI tools that sit on a data warehouse. So the need for that kind of capability is not going away. And in fact, I would tell you the need for a data warehouse, which is a very subject-specific production-oriented SLA-constrained kind of environment, doesn't go away either. We're going to see data warehouses in the future. The interesting part of the conversation is upon what technology is that data warehouse built? Am I going to use an Oracle or a Teradata or an or am I can I move to something like a HDFS, Hadoop, take advantage of SQL on Hadoop like a Hawk, and products out there like At Scale, and build my reports on something different? When we get involved with customers, we tend to avoid the data warehouse discussions because it's a religious battle but everybody can see the right on the wall everybody knows that the days of the data warehouse being built on a relational technology especially these that are very expensive their days are numbered and that the we actually have a couple of clients who we've actually who were Greenfield clients who wanted to build a data warehouse and there's no way we could take them down a, a, a relational route it was like we're going to build you something and as soon as we get done it's going to be obsolete who we've taken down the Hadoop route we've used something like Hawk, and the BI tools run just fine on it, so um, I think the concept and the functionality of the data warehouse will continue because of the need to have retrospective reporting on what happened. But the foundation is going to change.
1: Okay, fair enough. So uh, you know the the data warehouse um, is descriptive, right? So it's measuring what happened. So talk to us about the differences between descriptive analytics, prescriptive analytics, and then predictive analytics.
2: So So you're exactly right. So the BI environment is about descriptive analytics about what happened. What we'd like to do in our in part of our thinking like a data scientist workshop process is to help the business users move away from just thinking about the what happened monitoring questions to thinking about the predictive questions and we take them through an exercise which is really bone simple which is we capture the kinds of descriptive questions they ask today how many products i sell last month and we flip it how many products will i sell next month how many how many customers did i service last month how many customers will i service next month what percentage of my beds were filled last month what percentage do you think will be filled next month right so we start the process with them by moving from the descriptive, which they already have a pretty good handle on. And we have them just flip it just to get their minds going. But then we want to take them down the prescriptive, which is given what I know about what's going to happen, what should I do? And that is recommendations, right? Do I need more nurses? Do I need more teachers? Do I need more promotions? What's the right price? What's the what's the best route, right? So we really. In our thinking like a data scientist process we take our clients through, we really drive down to that prescriptive analytics where we deliver recommendations to either either the customers or more times not to frontline employees who then use those recommendations to actually interact with customers. So this customer is important to me. My, 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 my customer lifetime value calculation for the casino says this customer is really important. And if I offer them a free hotel room, they'll not only stay one day, but they'll actually stay two days and spend a lot more money. So the person on the floor is authorized to give that person a free hotel room because the, because the engine has said that person, if you give them a free hotel room, they're going to spend many more times more. So what we're finding then is by driving customers from the descriptive to the predictive to the recommendations, this is not Skynet. We're actually not automating those decisions. We're actually helping the humans at the point of customer reaction interaction be more effective.
0: So, would you say I mean, if you give me an example here and i do you feel like you felt like most people actually fit into uh the descriptive world pretty well who would you say is just outright king of the descriptive world from either a customer perspective i mean just give me an idea of like somebody when you say man the way they do their business it's all about descriptive
2: information mean descript- mean people who are descriptive or yes. people who are pred- okay descriptive. well so everybody's got descriptive now because if you've ever built a data warehouse You've had to spend three or four months capturing every question that anybody might ever want to ask in order to build that stinking schema, right? Remember the first step in my data warehouse process is to build a schema, right? Because my BI tools don't know what to run without a schema. So what we what we taught people in data warehouse world is you went through and you spent three or four months doing requirements, capturing all those questions and then using whether star schema or snowflake schema, whatever your preferred technique was to build the model. So most organizations have a bounty Of descriptive questions majority of which by the way aren't very useful but they've been capturing them because they might they sometime might want to ask that question so what's interesting about this process we go through is every customer we ever talked to every business customer knows what questions they are trying to ask and answer they already know it all we're trying to do all we do in our process is to unleash the creativity we flip it over and say okay you got the descriptive ones down really well let's predict the ones which ones are most important by the way if you have 100 descriptive questions and you ask them to flip them, 10 of them will be important. The other 90 won't be. Because when they flip them, they say, well, I don't really care about that, but I really need to know this. And then when you get to that, okay, why is that important? What action would you take? Well, then I want to try to do this. I'm trying to drive a decision. That's where you go from the predictive then to the prescriptive part of the, of the equation.
0: And so before I get to predictive, is there I'm going to try it again. Is there somebody that you say is just wholly successful on having a prescriptive business? Uh, in other words, their you know oh, yes. the basis of their success is
2: yeah. Being- you, you, you go you go no further than places like we that we all know well, like Netflix, okay, and Amazon and Pandora, right? They, they know you so much about you, they make recommendations on, here's what products you might want, here's what movie you might here's what music you might want to listen to. So to me, they are the model of the prescriptive world of, of companies that have learned so much about their customers and their products and the operations and their behaviors, their propensities, their interests, their passions, their affiliations, their associations, that they're leveraging all those insights to know so much about you that they say, hey, you're interested in, I know you like Ohio players, here's Funkadelics for you, right? And they can make those kind of recommendations. And, and it's surprising, by the way. It's one of those like those those magical moments, right? That how often they're right. It's like, God, that's that's a good song. That's a good that's a good movie. We see Facebook using that for you know people you might know, right? Trying to figure out, try to match. LinkedIn is probably even better than, than than Facebook at doing that, right? They they're piecing together all these obscure relationships to find a classmate you've not talked to in thirty years. If you guys were that old. <laughs>
0: So what about, then let's go to the next. Let's, um, you know, when you're talking about flipping it on the head, who let's let's not use one of the common ones that everybody says. Think about something a little bit out there. Who is killing it from a predictive perspective? Who's really doing it right and leveraging predictive uh, analytics to benefit their business and kind of break the mold?
2: So there's two industries that have done this historically very, very well that we can learn from a lot. Direct marketing and internet companies. Who are doing who are doing ad serving? They they predict all the time what sort of products you might be interested in. When you go click on a web page, right? When you click on a web page, there's probably five to seven different ads that pop up in that web web page. We're applying analytics in the background to predict what you might be interested in, what products, right? What services? What 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 concerts? What what events? What vacations? And so the the direct marketing organizations have they've been doing it forever, right? They they they. You know, they perfected the art of A-B testing, and the internet companies have, done the, have, have built on that very well. So if you want to find the masters of predictive, just go to the digital marketing companies and watch what they do. There's a lot we can learn from them as far as how they embrace. I mean, think about the amount of details that, that, you know, that Facebook knows about you and how on that right-hand side of your Facebook page they're constantly showing ads to you. Many, many of those ads are pretty relevant. Um, they weren't, by the way, two years ago. Um, And and by the way, they're going to get a lot better in two more years because they're going to perfect not only the data they capture about each of their visitors and customers, but the analytics are going to get better about how they match that.
1: So these customers are figuring out uh, how to move from just monitoring, you know, their business and data and and monetizing it. So you recently spoke, I guess kind of recently, this year, earlier this year, spoke at uh, Strata Plus Hadoop World. Mm-hmm. And you specifically talked about that uh, and how the utilization of something like a data lake, which is a term that I don't know if EMC came up with, but someone came up with. Um, you know, you've broken down silos. You have problems that you're looking to solve. Um, so talk to us a little, about, a little bit about that talk track. And then also, what's a data lake, right? Break it down for you know, for us lay people.
2: So the, the, the term data lake, by the way, comes from Pentaho who probably first used it about four or five years ago. Um, When I first started talking about data lake, I actually used the term um, operational data store or staging area. If you look at some of my old blogs I wrote many moons ago, um, to me it was an operational data store, a place where I could dump all of my data as is, right? A staging area, which is something, by the way, we had in data warehousing. Right, a staging area for data warehousing people, they get a staging area. they just like, oh, you just dump data in there. Right? But what we, what we didn't have back in Data Warehouse is the fact that it's 100x cheaper to do it with Hadoop than it is with the, with the Data Warehouse technology. So when I say dump all the data, I mean all the data. I don't mean 13 months of aggregated data. I mean 20 years of every transaction, of every credit card transaction, or, or call detail record, or, or purchase, or return, or medication. Right, I want it all because it's so stinking cheap. And I can drop it in there using Hadoop without first building a schema. So I can get data in there lickety-split. And by the way, the minute I build a schema, I have had to make assumptions about what data is important and what data is not. right? In a data lake, because I dump it all in there as is, the data scientists can go through the process of figuring out what's important and what's not. I'm not letting the schema artificially define that for me. So... The, the idea behind a data lake first in the first blush was just a place to dump all the data for two reasons, right? And by the way, when the data goes into my data lake, I'm going to use that then to feed my data warehouse, right? I have ETL routines today running for my data warehouse. It's pulling data out of SAP and Oracle Financials and Salesforce.com and bringing it to my data warehouse. No, not anymore. I'm dumping it all into the data lake, and I just turn the ETL engines to pull that stuff out of the data lake, because the most important thing about the data lake is I now have an environment, where my data scientist team can grab data, can throw it in there and see if there's any value. Want to see the impact that Zillow, that a, that a parent's house change in value has on a student's performance in class? You want to figure out if there's a relationship between the value of the house going up and the student's performance in class? Dump Zillow data into the into the data lake, compare it to student performance and see if you can find a relationship, right? So, this, this, this staging area became this vehicle that really unleashed the data science team and unhandcuffed them from being dependent upon the data warehouse. So that was the, really the first impetus behind the data lake was to get the data scientists off, the data, off of the data warehouse because the data warehouse had all these SLA constraint issues. I couldn't, didn't, couldn't get cycles. And oh, by the way, it doesn't have all the data anyway. And somebody who says that's a single version of truth for the organization has been smoking too much pot for too long, right? No such thing as single version of the truth. So <laughs> it's a, it's a, that's a over some beers, we can talk about how much of a waste of effort that is to go have to do that. But now I've got an environment where the data scientist can actually go through and can, can bring data in, can test it, figure out any value. There's no value, throw it away and move on to the next thing without being held captive by that, oh, you want a new data source and data warehouse? That's three months. That's a million dollars. Now... So that's what the data lake started off with, as it really the the analytic sandbox for the data science team. And the reason why I wanted the data, even the data that's going to go in the data warehouse to originate from them, is because everybody was working off the same base of data. But, oh, there's a benefit here. The fact that I have all the data in the data lake means I can get my ETL processes, which, by the way, um, probably consume 60 to 80 percent of all my data warehouse activities, I can get my ETL processes off of that stinking expensive data warehouse and do it in a data lake where I can use a parallel nature of Hadoop to do it faster and cheaper. My data, data warehouse people are all excited, right? Remember I said SLA constrained. Well, if I'm taking half of the workload off and putting it onto the data lake to do ETL, my data warehouse people are happy as pigs in mud. They got all kinds of bandwidth they didn't have before. So you have this. By the way, number one use case. You talk to Cloudera or to HortonWorks. Number one use case for for the, for them is ETL offload. Get the ETL off the data warehouse where it's really expensive and really cumbersome. Put it on the data lake. Everybody wins. Well, everybody wins except for the Teradata's and the Oracle's and the Net Teases of the world. And there's think, probably a reason. And there's probably a reason why the Teradata's revenue revenue projections of the last two quarters have gone negative. So um, I won't say anything more than that.
1: No, you know, it's it's a great point, right? The the whole the whole benefit of uh, certainly data in place analytics, right? So schema on read uh, functionality is the time to result is much, much quicker than having to go through some painful ETL process and then do some post-process batch process thing that, you know, you've already probably lost your moment, right?
2: Oh yeah. And think about how a data scientist works, they're 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 constantly playing with new ideas, new sources, new new metrics, trying to figure out which ones work. That's an iterate and fail fast process. It has to be measured in hours, not weeks, right? It's if you're trying to figure out if, which which you know what the new on base percentage is for a baseball world, you know I, I want to move quickly on that because if I don't figure it out first, you know the other team is going to. So the the, the time of speed and doing my data science work is really is um, enabled by the data lake and is thwarted by the data warehouse.
0: So we got a, we've got a couple of more questions coming up, um, and one of them is you've you've talked about these things, right? I'm listening to you. I'm 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 into the show, and I'm like I believe in him. And all I've got right now is standard traditional you know database with ETL and all that, and I'm ready to go. Um, where do I turn? To go, hey, I'm Mr. Customer, and I, you know, or I'm, you know, wherever I am, and I'm ready for big data, little data, analytics, um, you know, all of these things. Where do I go?
2: So it's it's easy. It's a piece of cake. Got to answer just one question. What is a business trying to accomplish over the next nine to 12 months? Customer acquisition, customer retention, predictive maintenance, you know, Staff infection reduction. What are you trying to accomplish? We start our conversation there. And what we do is we do this, this two to three week vision workshop process, no technology, right? And we, what we do is we do grab a sample set of the client's data. I'm talking like five or six gigabytes. And we run the data science, this illustrative analytics on, on a laptop, preferably a Mac. Um, and what we're trying to do is to help the client think through if this is the problem I'm trying to solve, what decisions am I trying to make? What data might I want to be able to use might be in that keyword again? What analytics might be most useful? And how might I want to render those analytic results to my key constituencies in order to help them make better decisions? So the first part of our engagement we engage with customers has nothing to do with technology. It has everything to do with putting the guardrails in place and a roadmap in place that says, okay, we now know where we're going to go. I mean, begin with an end in mind. It sounds silly and stupid, but it's important. And the organizations that have failed. And there's a recipe for failure in this space is you get Hadoop, you throw some data on there, you hire some data scientists, and you wait for magic to happen. And you wait. And you wait. Right? Well, that is like friggin' pushing a rope. Right? So we start with an endpoint. And by the way, the key for us in this process is once we know what you're trying to accomplish, we want to figure out what decisions the key business stakeholders are going to have to make to support that. The process couldn't be more simple. Now, once we have that, we've so a lot of times we start this process and they say, "Well, we we think we need these five data sources." By the time we get done, we've identified sixty. Now you're not going to start with 60, so I we'll go through a process of prioritizing those data sources vis-a-vis the value they have on the decision we're trying to drive and implementation feasibility over a 9 to 12 month period. By the way, we're, we're adamant on 9 to 12 months, nothing greater than 12 months. Anything greater than 12 months is a science experiment that somebody's willing, waiting, to, waiting to hijack. No, 9 to 12 months, light people's hair on fire, deliver a 700% ROI, make me more money. Right. So once we identify that, then we get the second phase of the process. Once we identified, oh, you're going to need this data. Here's the right analytics. Here are the right use cases. Next we do what we call a proof of value. Not a proof of concept, not a proof of technology. We know the technology already works. The NSA is already watching this right now as we give this presentation using this technology. So we know it all works, right? <laughs> so what we do in the proof of value is we do two things. Can we achieve the analytic lift? Can we improve our ability to retain customers? And what's the ROI? And by the way, the ROIs and these things are astronomical. The one for the casino, after cutting the ROI in half twice, was still over 700 percent. Right? Wow. Paybacks in four months, and they laughed. They said, "We know it's we know it's less. We know it's much less than four months. We pay it back in our first three decisions." Right? So, so we do the proof of value. We bring in a whole bunch of client data. Now we're bringing in, you know, now we bring in technology. Now we bring in data scientists. We bring in five or six terabytes of data. We bring in, you know, an Isilon architecture. We bring in Pivotal. We bring in SAS. We bring in a bunch of stuff. And we build the models out. And we show them the ROI. We show them the analytic models. And they say, love it. Let's operationalize it. Well, guess what? By virtue of the proof of value, we built your data lake. We built all the data transformation routines. We have built the analytics. We have built, all we do now is operationalize it. Right, which in many cases is an app dev. Right, how are you going to render the recommendations? You're going to build a mobile app for it, a tablet. You're going to send it via email. So there's a lot of app dev there. But you you guide the customer through this three step process, making it very simple for them, not overcomplicating it, and bringing the right technology to bear when you need it.
1: That's great. Couldn't so be- big data vision workshop, just a simple. You said two two to three week process, right? It could Just sit be down more and. Simpler. With decision makers and determine what the business outcome is that you're looking to solve.
2: Now the key point about the vision workshop is if you don't have both the business and the IT people in the room, you can't do it. If You think about there's a point in the conversation where you're looking at all these use cases and you're doing a determination of the value of that use case, which the business has to own, right? Is use case A or B more important and why? And then you got to do an implementation feasibility assessment from easy to hard. Which ones are easier to do? Because we want to pick use cases that have high value and are easy to do. And the IT organization owns that implementation feasibility aspect. So when we see organizations struggle is when like IT says, oh, we'll do it. We don't need the business. We know the business better than they do. Really? You mean you really believe you know the business better than they do? Then why aren't you over there making three times the salary by being the vice president of marketing instead of some lowly DBA over here? I don't (laughs) don't believe that for one friggin' second. You know the business better than them. What a stupid statement, right? But if you get organizations that where the business, business and IT people actually like each other and work, that's when the magic happens. That's when that creative juices start to flow. So, again, the vision workshop process is designed to be a non-technology exercise where we prioritize where we go. But probably the most important thing, you get business and IT people to lock arms and say, hey, together we can create magic.
1: So this is an easy way without knowing anything really uh, about the data and analytics space, right? You just need to know about your business and what you're trying to achieve. Right. But for those that want to know about more about big data and analytics – what are some good places to go to get educated, right? I mean, you know, you can go to YouTube, you can go to Google, um, you can go to uh, you know Hortonworks or Cloudera or whatever. But what do you recommend to just kind of get started down the path of learning a bit more about the space uh, so, and potentially what you can do?
2: So EMC has a data scientist certification class, um, and they've got a. They developed a, a textbook that's being used by a lot of universities. It's a great way to start the process. So um, we understand that, uh, I mean our business model isn't to put data scientists in a client's location forever, right? We want clients to be self-sufficient. And so EMC Education has a series of training classes for data scientists for, for the technology side. It teaches, you know, how to how to use Hadoop, how to use Spark, how to use Yarn and MapReduce. And it has some data science, how to use data mining and and machine language and statistics and things like that. So um, EMC does have a class for that. You can, you know, many universities, Northwestern's probably the most famous ones, um, um, has got a you know a class and 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 data. I mean, gosh, University of Iowa, University of San Francisco. Most schools now are offering masters or in PhDs in you know data analytics and informatics and things like that. So there's there's a lot of places you can go and learn to become a data scientist and sure. learn the technology components.
1: And there's the concept of the MOOC, the massive online curriculum or whatever it may be, but. I think we participate somewhere in that space. But there's yes. also a lot of free training specifically around data and analytics um, that EMC offers. So uh, it's probably not a heavy lift in terms of a Google search, but just go check it out. Uh, it's free. And if you really want to get certified, I think that's where maybe you pay some money. But this is yeah. really just about you can get well, the exact same education that your, you know, your people that are paying to play uh, are, are doing right now.
2: Yep, exactly. The, the, the Data Lake MOOC was very good. The content, the, the sessions, marvelous, marvelous piece of work.
0: Well, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to do this. We have, um, we've basically exhausted all of our time. Oh. We did it. Yeah. Um, as, so usual, as usual, we've got a million questions more, but, uh, you know, for another time. We just saving, saving the best for some some other time. Um, so the first thing is, you know, you're kind of all over the place as far as conferences. You're Strata plus Hadoop. Big Data SV, the I mean, you're on the Cube, you know, obviously the Cube, you know, branded you. So um, what's your next show or what's your next big, you know, thing that's coming up in maybe November or whatever's going on?
2: Well, I, I do a lot of, I'm doing a lot more CIO and even CEO events now. I did a CEO event in New York when I was at Strata for about 20 CEOs. Um, and it was—I I, got to—I was nervous about that because I've, you know, I've given my spiel all time to the CIO community, but really never done to the CEO. The the hour session lasted an hour and a half. We never got past my second slide. I've got follow up meetings with all these CEOs and their executive teams. So to me, it was it was really refreshing to realize that um, we're talking their language. Um, of course, they always look at me and say, "You're you're EMC. What do you know about the business? You guys aren't Accenture or Deloitte." And they're like, "Well." We're in the data business. EMC is in the data business, right? And, and we're trying to help you get more value out of data. So um, I've got a lot more of those kind of events going on um, with CIOs and CEOs. I go to conferences. I've got one, in and um, I'm speaking at the World Bank um, in D.C. I'm doing an event down in Phoenix. i got something going on in Montreal. It's, it's you know something going on down in Florida. I, I do a lot of events. It gives me a chance to speak. But when I go to these events, I don't just go there to speak. I get a chance to spend time with customers. And to me, that's the best part. I get a chance to talk to customers. So, And I always start the conversation. So what's the business trying to accomplish for the next 9 to 12 months? Whenever a salesperson calls me and says, hey, Schmars, I need to have you on a sales call. I say, so what's the customer trying to accomplish in the next 9 to 12 months? Usually there's a really long pause. And then there's a the hang-up sound. Right? They don't know, right? And so you can't have this conversation if you don't know how your customers are trying to make money. And it's it's interesting to watch EMC, a company, go through that transformation, and we are, by the way. We're going through that transformation to really help our, our sales teams to really understand how we can help our customers be more successful. So that was a long-winded answer to your question. I'm going to be everywhere. I'm like the old chicken man. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. So um, if you look around the corner, I'm probably there.
0: So we can find you on uh, Twitter, at Schmarzo, um, and I guess your official blog is the EMC in Focus blog. Do you have any other places where people can read your stuff?
2: No, I keep it all there because I've got the, the EMC folks are great about, you know, proofreading my stuff and, and making sure that I'm not talking total
0: nonsense. And so we have your, your as far as books, we have your book, Big Data, Understanding How Business Powers Big Business. And mm-hmm. then there's another book coming for that you can wrap with um, some red ribbon and give out at Christmas time um, yep. that we don't know the name of, but we'll figure it out. It's, um,
2: it's called It's called The Big Data NBA. Driving Business Strategies with Data Science.
0: Sweet. Uh, are there other books that are not yours that you would say, hey, you really should go grab this one? If you're going to read oh. one more book this week, what's it going to be?
2: So I'll, I'll, end the, I'll end the session with my most important book. I tell all the customers to read it. And I already said what book it was. Moneyball.
0: Moneyball. Interesting.
2: This, it summarizes very nicely what data science is. Data science is about identifying those variables and metrics that might be better predictors of performance. Okay. And you know what? And it's that simple.
0: That's, uh, that is a, you know, uh, taking something that's not IT and uh, not technology directly and turning it into something that you can leverage for your job is, is always fun. It should be a good read. And uh, hopefully the book is, is, is enjoying is looking at Brad Pitt. Um, <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is where we wrap it up. You know, Bill, we, we can't thank you enough for joining us uh, as usual. Very enlightening. Uh, so thank you very much.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Kind of a fun little uh, process here. I very much enjoyed the the give and take conversation.
0: It's, it's great. And by the way, that uh, Cubs jersey you're wearing is is fantastic.
2: Is that to, great? Yes. Go, Cubs go. Yep. I'll, now I can put the hat on. Now that I can, I'm done. Right?
0: Yes. <laughs> so uh, for for everybody listening, um, you know, we'd love it if you can hit hit us up on Twitter. Uh, you know, you've got myself and Brent. Uh, you know, Get social with us Everybody's pe- requesting things They've been requesting things like uh, Us talking about big data Anything else you want to hear about As long as it's not about Brent's personal life And the fact that he's not wearing pants again We want you guys to get at us And let us know uh, A lot of people requesting stickers Because Brent ordered them and won't give them to me That's his problem now So on behalf of the Hot Isle I'm Brian Carpenter
1: I'm Brent Piatti.
0: And thank you once again for joining us this week.
1: Whoop.